17, if you could stand to your feet for the reading of God's word. And while you stand, stand with confidence. What we have in our hand is that just that, the very breath of God, the very word of God. You know, you hear people talk all the time talking about the Bible, and they try to disprove it. And they try to come up with all kinds of things saying, you know, the Bible was altered, it was changed, it was this and it was that. Well, the wonderful thing uh, about the Bible and any true uh, historian uh, who knows ancient literature, one thing that they cannot argue with is the Bible's authenticity. There are over 5,700 ancient manuscripts of the scriptures. And in order for those to be altered, someone or a group of people would have had to find every single manuscript and change it over 5,700 times. The only alterations that, that occur in the original manuscripts that, that we have today are small things, such as maybe a, a mis misspelled word or uh, a, a rephrasing of a sentence. 99% of, of what we hold in original manuscripts, they are exactly identical. So the issue of scripture being altered or being a hoax or being changed throughout history is one that holds no weight at all. What you hold in your hand is God's word. It has not been altered. It has not been changed. <laughs> and, and if it had been changed, it seemed like they would have changed some, some other things to make it more appeasable to us and make us feel better, amen, <laughs> about our sin nature. So this is God's word. Let's read. Mark chapter 2, verse 13. He went out again besides the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him. And he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You may be seated in the name of Jesus. Reclining at the table with King Jesus. Reclining at the table with King Jesus. Read my lips. No new taxes. That was the famous line delivered by the then presidential candidate, uh, President George Bush in 1988 at the Republican National Convention. That line would create a soundbite that would forever be infamous. President Bush went on to win the 1988 election, and many will argue that that speech helped propel him uh, to do just that. Now, Bush would find himself quickly frustrated as he would soon discover that keeping a promise of such degree is easier said than done. Now, technically, Bush did not introduce new taxes, but by 1990, as a result of the increasing national debt and economic woes, we know that he did, in fact, raise taxes. During the 92 presidential campaign, the candidates who ran against Bush were sure to remind the then president of his failed promise to satisfy the American people when it came to the issues of taxes. Well, this 
subject of how Americans should feel towards taxes and, and what should be done with our national tax is still an issue that can quickly divide a room. Even as we speak, I'm sure that there are some young, bright-eyed college students somewhere in a coffee shop arguing and debating about President Obama's Buffett tax plan. But listen, no matter how much we are tempted to complain or how aggravated we feel about the current state of taxes, our tax woes pale in comparison to what the average first century Jew was feeling about the state of taxes. This is the way taxes worked for the first century Jews as they were under the Roman control. The Roman governors, uh, probably Herod Antipas at this time, they would mark off an area and they would call in uh, chief tax collectors. And these chief tax collectors would then begin to entertain other smaller tax collectors who wanted to have a, or who had a, a franchise, a small franchise, uh, doing taxes or collecting taxes. And the Roman uh, government set it up so these uh, chief tax collectors would say, uh, start bidding for a specific area. So let's say the area was Capernaum. The chief tax collectors would say, uh, I guarantee that I can get this much, this amount of money from this area. And another person would bid and say, no, 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 I guarantee you that I can get you this much from the, the citizens in this area. So it became a bid on who can get the most money out of this area, and whoever said that they could get the most money out of that area would then put a, a smaller tax collector over that area in order that they would run the tax gamut. Now this system was a perfect system for, uh, to, that, that attracted uh, many bad things. It was perfectly set up for someone to to just uh, take advantage of people, to, to bribe people. Because the way that it works is those who own the smaller franchises, they could pretty much set the taxes at any rate that they want to. And after they met their quota or what they promised Rome, they got to keep whatever came in. This, this just set up a, a really bad situation as many of them would ex, ex, uh, just, just seek to be thieves and to steal and to do all types of things. So the tax system was really messed up. It was really depressing for those who lived during this time. Some tax collectors were responsible for taxing an, an, an entire areas for property tax and, and land income while other franchises collected a wide variety of taxes on imported or exported goods. And they charged people for using roads and for having business licenses. In fact, they even charged fishermen uh, for catching fish in the sea. So if you're a fisherman and you caught a, a fish, they would even tax you off the fish that you caught. It was, it was really bad. It was really bad really bad. A business like this, of course, attracts all types of thugs. 
And tax collectors would often uh, hire thugs to get their money from the people. So it, it was just a, a bad, bad situation. So I think it's an understatement when I say that tax collectors were despised by local citizens as they were unfair in, in their attempt to, to get money. To make matters worse, it was one thing to be a tax collector in a Jewish area. It was another thing to be a Jewish tax collector <laughs> in a Jewish area. This was the ultimate betrayal. A Jew was commanded to, to love God with everything that they had and to love their neighbors as themselves. I mean, Micah tells us that we are to love justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. And yet these Jews were often taking advantage of their own people. They were often robbing their own people. Many Jews saw them how we may see uh, Benedict Arnold as a traitor, as an ultimate betrayer. Some commentators even say that a first century Jew to the, who was a tax collector to those Jews is, is similar to the way uh, a Jew during the Nazi uh, regime would have seen Jewish moles or informants. There's a deep hatred for tax collectors. Tax collectors were often mentioned in the same breath as murderers, as thieves, and as prostitutes. They were seen as, as scoundrels. They were seen as the lowest of lows. In fact, most theologians say that the Jews who collected taxes, that they were completely alienated from their families and from their friends. They were disqualified to serve in any Jewish public service. They couldn't be a judge or a witness in court. They were not allowed in the synagogues. And some traditions even say that if a, a Jew touched a Jewish tax collector, that they were even deemed as ceremonial, ceremonially unclean. That you were viewed as unclean just for touching a tax collector. passage before we saw Jesus minister to a leper. A leper was a, a social outcast because of his skin disease. A, a leper did not choose to have leprosy. It's something that was put on him. A disease that was almost given to him. But tax collectors were even more of a social outcast because tax collectors chose to be tax collectors. But in this text, we just see how amazing Jesus is. We see how, how marvelous he is as he, he shows us that he doesn't just reach out to lepers. He doesn't just have a heart of compassion towards lepers, but he has a, a heart and compassion for, for, for people who are seen as the least of these and, and for the dirty and for the scoundrels and for robbers and for prostitutes, that his heart goes out to everyone. He's a God of love and mercy. This text has everything to do with every part of your life. This text has everything to do with your family and the way you relate to your family members. 
This text has everything to do with the way that you love your husband or your wife. This text has everything to do with the way that you read your word. It has everything to do with every single area of your life. Because this text reveals to us. It reveals to us what having a relationship with Jesus looks like. And it also reveals to us on what keeping a thriving relationship with Jesus takes. And the answer might surprise you. So we look at the text, we read in verse 13 that Jesus went out again beside the sea and that the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. And he was teaching them. So we pick up on, on a couple things that we have already seen. There's a crowd following him and that he is, is teaching the crowd. He is ministering to the crowd. For that is what Jesus came to do, to, to minister to the crowds, to preach the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, of, of, of his gospel. But what's interesting about th- verse 13 and what I like is, it says that he went out again beside the sea. Now Jesus has his disciples with him as well as the crowds. Specifically, he has four disciples that has been identified, and each of these disciples he found by the sea fishing. Isn't it interesting that Jesus is now preaching once again by the sea? It's almost as if these men who were fishermen are, are with Jesus, and they're going back to their hood with Jesus. They're back where they were found, and they're back ministering to the, to the people that they often hung out with. So they're back in their hood trying to reach other fishermen. Verse 14 says, And as he passed by them, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and he followed him. This is amazing. Don't miss this. Jesus is by the sea. He's kicking it with his disciples. He's, he's teaching his disciples' homeboys who are, who are lost and in darkness about the, the gospel, the good news, about, uh, uh, about how he is the, the fulfillment <laughs> of, of Isaiah 61. He's showing this this way. And all of a sudden, as they're leaving the, the sea, as they're walking, they run into a man whose name is Levi, who is identified as, as a publican or a tax collector. Now, keep in mind, that this tax collector, Levi, it is a very good chance that he was these disciples' tax collectors. It's a very good chance that he was extorting money from these disciples. It's a very good chance that every time they caught a big load of fish, that he would come up to them and say, well, this is how much you have to pay off that fish and give them an outlandish price. Jesus calls this disciple, he, he, he calls Levi, whose name is, as we know, is, is also Matthew, according to Luke's gospel. He calls him just as he called these fishermen to follow him. But what's beautiful about this picture is he calls them together to follow him. They would have certainly been enemies. They would have certainly got into some arguments, certainly been beefing with each other. Peter probably with his loud mouth and rambunctious ways probably had, had told off Matthew many times or wanted to tell him off. And now Jesus is calling them to serve him together. The gospel of Jesus Christ unites. 
The gospel of Jesus Christ brings all types of people together. The gospel of Jesus Christ is where when two people believe in Christ and when they see how amazing he is, when they are in, in love with his teaching and, and to see how, how much he, he loves them, barriers begin to break down. And to those of us who are, are married and our, our marriages are struggling and, and yet we, we both are Christians, both of you are Christians, you, you, want, you don't want to miss this. If your focus is Jesus, if you are amazed at Jesus, if Jesus' teaching has been, been drawing you, then that, that teaching should captivate your heart and it should make you follow him. It calls you to follow him. And it calls a, a husband and a wife to follow him together. And our issues, our differences, our, our, our downfalls, our idiosyncrasies, when they are brought to Jesus, they're healed. They're healed. A lot of times what we find in marriage and in family is, is that the opposite can, can very well be happening. Rather than coming together and saying, how does Jesus see the situation? How does Jesus' teaching affect our lives and affect us day to day? We kind of just put it on the back burner and put them on the back burner. And we try to fix things ourselves. But if Jesus, and if, if he is the good news, and if he is our focus, if he is who we're longing after and his kingdom is what we're desiring, then we can sit down at the table and say, let's work this through with Jesus Word in mind. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility. Count one another as more, the other person as more significant than yourselves. And how do you do that? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Levi and these disciples were able to come together because Jesus was at the center of their relationship. You know, recently I watched a, a DVD. It was between a Christian and a, a, a Muslim. It was a dialogue or a kind of a debate between the two as they were looking at uh, the differences and similarities between the, the religion. And the uh, Muslim debater uh, said to the, the Christian debater, he says, you know, well, what, what's so different about Christianity when it comes to, to moral? And the guy, in, in so many words, he says, well, well, Christians are empowered by the Holy Spirit and they're being made by Christ to look a certain way. And he quoted Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. Talked about how we are then filled with the Spirit and the Spirit gives us his fruit, which is love, peace, joy, and so and so. And the Muslim looked at him and said, are you saying that Muslims cannot have those attributes? He says, no, I'm not saying that they cannot have and display certain attributes. But I'm saying that what God does in a Christian's life is supernatural. I'm saying that they have those attributes in, a, in almost a supernatural way. And he told a testimony. He says, check this out. He says, when I first came, uh, before I was a Christian, I was a racist. I was a racist. I, I hated white people. I was that guy on campus that, that was pushing the, the black movement. 
He said, but when Jesus saved me, almost instantaneously, he gave me a love for all people. He said, and it was supernatural. Only he could do that. Jesus empowers us to be unified around him and through him. When we understand that we have, all have some major things in common, number one, that we all are sinners and fall short of his glory, number two, that he has saved us and captivated us and drawn us by asking us and inviting us and commanding us to follow him. So Matthew follows him, verse 15. The scene now switches to Jesus in, in Matthew's home. It says, and as he reclined at the table... In his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. So the scene now changes from them being out and and Jesus calling Matthew. We don't know how much time has passed, but it's possible that this is the same day. It's possible that it's a week later. It's possible uh, that it's it's a little ways late. But Mark puts these two stories together. And now they're at Levi's. Home. And the Bible says that they are reclining at, at Levi's table. Levi then invites Jesus into his home. And he is honoring Jesus, re- respecting Jesus, showing Jesus that, that he, he really wants to follow him by, by not only having him in his house, but the Bible then goes on to tell us that there were many who followed. There were other tax collectors and there were sinners sitting around the table with him. So Jesus is now in the house of Levi, and he is surrounded by what most people would call the low lives of society. He is surrounded by other tax collectors. The only people who liked tax collectors were tax collectors. They stuck together. And not only did they stick together, but the only other types of people were, were sinners. Now, when this word sinners is used... Uh, in a Jewish context, is used to speak of any person who is, is known for abhorring the law, not, not keeping the law of Moses. So this could have been all types of people. These are people who every other Jew knows does not believe in Yahweh or is not following Yahweh's way. So here's Jesus, here's his disciples living with the, the, the low life, so to speak, of society. And this is a big deal. This is a a huge deal. Now let's read verse 16. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? So we see it says the scribes of the Pharisees. So these are are, are, our scribes. These are the lawyers. These are those who would have been seen as the religious elite. They come into Levi's house or they see what's going on in Levi's house and they ask the question, they say, why is Jesus eating pretty much with the low lives of society? This is a a big deal. Now, normally when we think about the scribes and the Pharisees, because y'all go to Sunday school so much and y'all read your Bible so much, we kind of immediately just think to ourselves like, man, here's the bad guys, right? Here's the religious popo, right? These are... These are the guys that's handing out tickets to everybody because they're not saved enough or whatever. But we, we want to understand that a Jew, 
uh, to, the, to, to the, the Jews and even the non-Jews, when they saw the Pharisees and the Sadducees, man, these Pharisees, they, they kind of faked everybody out. They had everybody going. Everybody thought that these were the religious elite. You saw a scribe of Pharisee, they had these long robes on and bells on, and they knew the law inside out. They had calculated exactly how many laws it was in the Old Testament, 618. They broke them off in all types of categories. Man, to, to these people, they were so saved, man. Not only did they break them off into other categories, but they made laws to, to protect the laws. You know, Moses said this. They put, put parameters around those laws to protect those laws. Uh, so, so everybody's looking like, oh, these are, these are the religious elite that's coming. But, but these origi- uh, uh, religious uh, elite throughout the Gospels, Jesus, he's really not impressed with them. Throughout Mark, these Pharisees and these scribes of Pharisees, man, they're put in a really bad light. That's what we read earlier in Matthew chapter 23. Jesus straight went off on them. Man, he was sitting there, he was just kicking it, just teaching, and he just, he just blacked out on them. He said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. And we're thinking like, man, these, these are the guys who are supposed to have it together. Well, what's the issue here? Why, 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 number one, why is the, the religious elite looking down on a, another teacher for spending time with the unsaved, those who don't know God? Number two, why, why does Mark and the rest of the Gospels put them in such a negative light? Well, here's why. The problem with the scribes and the Pharisees was this. They were religious. <laughs> Their religion separated them from knowing God. Their, their religion was a religion of morality, which means that their focus was external. They believed that in order to get to God, in order to, to please God, one had to have it together outwardly. Their religion was based upon external things, on outward performance. They thought that if we performed well, then we'll be right with God and God would bless us. They had a a works-based righteousness. Moralism. Throughout the Gospel of Mark, God is teaching us that Moralism, this, this, this outward religion, is not what it means and what it looks like to have a relationship with Jesus. That Jesus is not religious in a traditional sense of the word. And that's why so many people have such a major problem with the average Christian. It's because we put such an, inf- uh, uh, an emphasis on, on external things, on, on our things. On performance, on looking a certain way. That many times we miss what is what 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 our relationship with God is all about as loving God. See, outward performance, moralism, moralistic religion, it leads to self-righteousness. 
If all a person is and if all Christianity is to you is keeping a bunch of rules and doing your best to do your best and trying your best to look pious and act pious, what you're going to fall into is self-righteousness before a matter of time. You're going to be, be blinded from, from what it, it really looks like and what it really means to follow Christ. And what you're going to start doing is you're going to start following a list of rules. And when you do those rules well, you're going to become self-righteous and, and prideful. And, and if you do them, don't do them well, you're going to become depressed. <laughs> and not be able to, to walk in a relationship with God. These religious leaders were self-righteous. Can you see them condemning these, these broken people? These, these prostitutes, these sinners, they're looking down on them. They're looking down at Jesus for even hanging out with them. Because to them, religion is all about performance. Works-based righteous, righteousness. Now what motivates them? What motivates people to have an outward uh, religion, a religion that's all about performing? That's all about doing, their, doing your, your best to, to keep up an image or doing your best to, to, to not do something, not break something in order that God would be pleased with you or show favor to you. Oftentimes what, what happens with moralism is this. People are normally motivated by two things. Either one, punishment, or two, pride. If the only reason you're following God is because you're afraid to be punished by God if you don't do something. You're not going to last long. Punishment is, is not what it's going to take to keep you and to make you delight in God. But not only punishment, other, other people are motivated to, to have this outward religion and to try to do their best to keep it together and to be pious and to look a certain way uh, because of, of issues of pride. These, these Pharisees, the Bible says, they, they loved, they loved being in a position of power. They loved everyone calling them by their name, rabbi, teacher. They, they love people listening to them pray long prayers. They, they love being respected by other people. Self-righteousness is not gospel living and does not lead to gospel living. God does not want us to be pharisaical. He does not want us to, to look like these scribes. A person who is, is living in self-righteousness, who, who believes that they can, in essence, these Pharisees believe that they can save themselves. These scribes, they believe that they can save themselves by keeping the law, by doing all these good things. And, and they were really just fooling themselves because no one can keep the law. Breaking one law makes you a lawbreaker. Righteousness is not found from within. Righteousness is found from outside of us. It's found in Christ, not in ourselves. And when we make religion about us keeping an image or keeping up a list of rules, we fail to be righteous in the sight of God. And what ends up happening to the person who is self-righteous is two things. Number one, they think that they can control God as a result of them keeping the, their own list well. And number two, they exclude others and look down on others. 
That's what we see in this text. The tax collectors, they come to Jesus, they send him to Levi's house, and they ask the questions, what in the world is he doing sitting with them? Trying to control, control things by making their own parameters and, and their own things. And the second thing we see that they're doing is, is they're looking down on others. This is the same exact thing that's happening in Luke chapter 15. In, in the story of what we call the prodigal son. You all remember that story about the, the one son who was irreligious and he leaves home. Uh, uh, he represents the person who was irreligious. He leaves home, he asks for his, his goods from his father. And he goes out and he, he kills his inheritance on foolish, foolish spending. And then he comes back to the father, the Bible says, when he comes to himself and the father accepts him, he, he hugs him and he welcomes him. But the father has another son, and the other son is a very religious guy. The Bible says that he's, he's, he's obedient. He says to the father, wait a minute, why are you accepting this man back? Why are you accepting my brother back? He went out and he disgraced you by not living for you. And here I am. I'm in your house. I'm, a, I'm keeping all of these commands. I'm being obedient in this way. But yet you throw a party for him. You see what happened? His religion was all about keeping a list of rules. And as a result, when the lost son came home, he thought that he could control the father by pointing to his obedience. And not only that, he looked down upon the son. Some of us in here, that is what religion is to us. It's keeping up with the list of rules that we've made. Coming to church, wearing these type of clothes, knowing a couple Bible verses, singing some Kurt Franklin songs, keeping our to-do list, deciding what our to-do list is. And then looking down on people who don't think the same way that we do and who don't dress the same way that we do, whether they're saved or not, and who don't stand on secondary, third, or a third type of issues like we do. And our whole religious life is all about impressing others. It's all about appearing pious. It's all about looking like we've got it together. Jesus is not pleased with that. Who is Jesus reclining at the table with? He's reclining with Matthew and his disciples. Those who acknowledge that they have no self-righteousness. Matthew knows he's messed up. Levi knows he's a mess. Jesus rather be at a table, he, he rather be, he, he, he prefers to be at a table with people who are messed up and who knows that they're messed up than people who are self-righteous and who don't know that they're messed up. He's kicking, he's chilling. Kicking the heart says he's reclining. Former way of sitting, they used to kind of kind of chill like this at the table and eat. Seriously. He's kicking it with. He don't have a problem with the prostitute. Well, he does with their sin, because he's trying to draw them out of it. But he's not telling them off like he told, told the Pharisees off. He's not laying it to them. Tim. So Keller says that the, the gospel, the way that the gospel works is it works from the inside out. And the way religion works is from the outside in. This is the difference. 
a religious person and, and, and many religious people, the way that they think, the way that they work is like this. It's if I do this and I keep these rules and I appear to look this way, then I can rest at night and believe that God has accepted. So their righteousness is found in them performing. Following Jesus and the gospel is the opposite. It's understanding that you are a sinner. It's understanding that we were born in sin, shaped by our iniquity, that we are dirty, dirty people. And the only way that we are declared clean is through Jesus Christ, by putting our faith and trust in him and clinging to him, by having him as our hope and our salvation. That there's nothing that we can do in of ourselves to impress God. There's nothing that we can do. We cannot stand before God in heaven and go off a list of rules and say, this is what I did, this is why I should get in. It starts with us understanding that a salvation is by grace. We have a grace righteousness. That we have been saved by the grace of God. Not as a result of any merit of our own, but as a result of God's love towards guilty sinners. And that thought, that thought changes the way we relate to God. It changes the way we live. The grace of God is what changes the way we, we live, is what changes our pursuit of God. It is why we pursue holiness. We don't pursue holiness because we want to be accepted by God. We pursue holiness because we understand that God has accepted us when we don't deserve it. Is that you? Are you living inside out? Or outside in. A person who lives inside out is a person who is delighting in Christ and a person who wants to honor Christ with their lives just like Levi wanted to honor Christ by, by giving this great big party for him, the celebration for him. But it's also a person who has committed their lives to, to showing Christ off. Levi said, wait a minute, you're, you're accepting me, you're asking me to follow you? The rest of these religious leaders, they just look down on me, they, they turn their nose up to me, but you actually want me to follow you? Great, I will follow you. And he says, oh, wait, let me honor you, let me throw a big party for you. Jesus, the only people I know are just like me. The only people I know are messed up. The only people I know are tax collectors. The only people I know are bogus, are shady, they're thugs. The only people I know are strippers, back rock, bike riders with tattoos up their neck. The only people I know are, are, are people who are doing all kinds of things, things that the average religious folk will look down at. But he says, guess what, Jesus? I love you so much and you're so amazing. I want them to know you. I want them to know that you accept people like them. And that you're willing to talk to them. And that you're willing to teach them and shape them. And that you're willing to show them what it means to live for God the Father. Religious people take religion to people rather than Christ. Religious people, when they see an unsaved person walk in the door who has baggy jeans on and, and, and a hat cocked to the side, 
Religious people go and say, pull up your pants. Straighten out your hat. Take off your hat. Gospel-centered people, they're not looking at the fact that his pants are sagging and that a hat is on. They said, man, I'm not even judging. You may already know Christ, but man, I want to see if you know Christ because I, I want you to hang out with him. Because if you hang out with him, he will flip your world upside down. And before you know it, you'll be honoring him and you'll be showing him off to everybody else. Verse 17, and we're done. And when Jesus heard it, he said to him, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is, this is almost kind of funny. The religious leaders are the ones who are supposed to be showing people God, introducing people to God, loving people, and, and, and hoping that people will love the one true God. But here they are, looking at these sinners and looking down on them, putting burdens on and saying, what are you doing sitting with That's like a firefighter showing up to someone's house. And they show up to the house and they're dressed in their fireman clothes and the house is burning. And someone says, there's still people in there. And they look down at that person and say, so what? They should be able to save themselves. They should know how to get out of this house if the house is on fire. We know. Look at us. We're protected. We got on this, this nice suit. We've got all this stuff. We got a fire hose right here and a truck. And they look at another fireman who's actually going in the house to get the other people and say, what is he doing? Why in the world is he going up those stairs to get that crying baby? Jesus said, I have not come for the righteous. What does he mean? I have not come for the self-righteous. I have not come for the self-righteous, the person who has declared themselves righteous. I have not come for the person who says that they got it all together because they know a couple Israel New Breed songs and they can, can, can quote a couple verses. I haven't come for that person who thinks that they can't be told anything and they know everything about the Bible. I'm not come for that person who is doing things and, and checking off a, a checklist at the end of the night and says, I'm a Christian because I do this. I've come for that person who, who is poor in spirit and who realizes that they are broken without Christ and desperate need without Christ. I've come for that person who says, you know what, I'm a sinner. I'm just like Levi. I may have never bribed anyone. I may have never stolen from anyone. I may have never slid down a strip pole. I may have never sold crack cocaine or, or, or been on the streets and thug, living, shouting out thug life. But I am messed up. Even the most morally conservative person in this world without Jesus Christ's righteousness is messed up. God is so holy. I don't care how much you think you got it together, how well you're able to pretend you have it together, how well you can pray in front of other people, how well you can sing in front of other people. If that is what you are clinging on to, you are not clinging on to Christ. God wants us to come to him like a tax collector. Morning. Daily. I have no righteousness of my own. Title means nothing to me. The only thing that I have is Christ. And Christ is so amazing. He's so beautiful that he saved me by grace. He saved me according to his love and according to his mercy. That all I want to do is live for him. 
All I want to do is honor him with my life. All I want to do is call people to my house and say, let's hang out. Let me get to know you. Let me tell you about what Jesus did in my life. Let me tell you about how messed up I feel in. Let me tell you about how I fall short daily. Let me tell you about how, how, how daily I'm, I'm struggling with issues and sins, but how daily I'm able to recline at the table with Jesus. Let me tell you about how Jesus takes messed up people and he makes them righteous. That's what he came to do. He's the Messiah. In order to spell Messiah, you first got to spell mess. We all messed up and we all need a Messiah. And Jesus is the Messiah. And he wants to recline at the table with you daily. He wants to kick it with you daily. He wants to tell you that he loves you daily. He wants you to see the Father daily. He wants you to be broken and yet at the same time humble and confident daily. He wants you to depend on him and not on your works. Works-based righteousness is no righteousness at all. Do you see yourself as a sinner saved by the grace of God? Do you understand that Jesus is in the business of fixing broken people? Do you understand that he has come not for the person in the suit and the tie who has it all together, but he's come to save those who recognize that they do not have it together. He's come for the thugs. He's come for the prostitutes. He's come for the broken and new birth. He's come for the one who's been molested. And who now thinks that life is all about giving gratification to, to other men. He's come for the weed smoke and the pothead. He's come for the cocaine addict. He's come for the one who's going in and out of shelters. People need gospel-centered people, not religious people. This world needs people who can say, you know what I have on this suit and tie, and, and, and it's just what I'm wearing, but underneath this, I'm, in many ways, I'm just like you. And save the grace of God, I will be worse off than you. I'm not standing where I'm standing because I have it together. I'm standing where I'm standing because God has allowed me to live with him as if I have it together. My question to you is this. When you see a person on the street, how are you looking at them? Are you looking at them up and down and saying, man, they're messed up? Oh, I'm so glad I'm not like them. Oh, is your heart broken? Your neighbors, your, your lost family members. Are you looking at them from the eyes of a publican, a tax killer, of a, of a Pharisee, or from the eyes of Jesus? He said, I did not come to save those who can save themselves. last time you had dinner with an unsaved person with the purpose of leading them to Christ your unsaved friends and, and loved ones how, how, how much of your time spent with them is, is really focused on helping them to see that Jesus can summons them and say that he has summons them to, to follow him when was last time And we said to Jesus, Jesus, without you, I'm nothing. Let us pray. Father, help us to see. Help us to see your son and just how beautiful he is. 
Help us to see, Father God, that he calls us all to follow him. That he is not looking for people who are in, who, who can be declared impressive by others. He's not looking for people who think that they're impressive. Who's building their whole life on trying to impress others by appearing to be pious. Help us to see, Father God, that you are calling the unimpressive people to be impressed by your son. To live with a heart that says, Lord, all I have is you. Help us to be amazed at grace and not try to base our, our Christian walk off of works and keeping up a checklist. Speak to those of us in here who are Pharisaical and help us to be broken. Thank you, Father God, for coming for the least of these. Because had you not, I would not know you. Jesus' name. Amen. I want everyone to bow.